Hello and welcome to the In Squash Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Gibson, and today, episode 250 of the pod comes at the 25th anniversary of the Tournament of Champions, and what an honor it was uh, to have this legend on. No stranger to uh, Grand Central Terminal, six-time finalist of that event, former world number one, three-time World Open champion, 10-time British Open uh British national champion, three-time British Open champion, as well as three-time Commonwealth Games gold medalist, amongst many other uh, uh, successes on the Pro Tour and in squash, Nick Matthew. And as I expected, and as you might expect, it was a real treat. Um, lots, to, lots that we talked about today. And Nick uh, took uh, several deep dives, a tremendous one on the British Junior Open, which just wrapped up and picking up basically where he left off with his Squash Mad article of a week or so ago. Uh, we talked about both the highs and lows of that event, including uh, the British success at under 19, um, a first ever U.S. male winner at under 13, and uh, obviously the Egyptian dominance throughout with 11 of 14 finalists uh, throughout in, in the uh, age groups. Uh, we also talk, obviously, about the Tournament of Champions, and I get his predictions uh, for the men's and the women's finals. He did not sit on the fence, uh, as uh, PJ uh, might do uh, on Squash TV, but uh, we also uh, discuss uh, in a very interesting discussion about uh, the current uh, world number one, the new world number one on the men's side, Mustafa Asal, his thoughts on Mustafa's games and the controversies uh, that seem to surround him uh, within the PSA and also in social media. And also a very interesting uh, discussion on how uh, he feels players ought to be playing him and how he tactically would have played against him, uh, uh, would have played against the world number one, what he would have done tactically. A really interesting discussion there. Uh, and there was uh, so much more we uh, didn't get into because, uh, you know, we just basically ran out of time. But suffice it to say, Nick hit this one out of the park. I know you're going to enjoy it. Uh, I was so pumped up, actually, during the episode that I even cramped up uh, towards the end of it, uh, which was a first for me. And uh, perhaps even a first for any podcast host out there cramping up during an episode. But, uh, but before we get into Ep 250, just a few words from our tremendous sponsor, uh, groundbreaking sponsor, Open Squash. Uh, the New York-based nonprofit dedicated to bringing thousands of new people into the sport by making it more accessible and more affordable for everyone. One of the ways Open Squash fulfills this mission is through their Junior Scholarship Fund. I've talked about this uh, several times on the pod, uh, uh, which helps support the 25% of juniors uh, that they're focusing on with financial aid. Open Squash's primary vision is, of course, growing the game, and they've brought on board several like-minded PSA pros like former world number one Ali Farag. We hope he gets uh, well soon. Uh, he's not at the TOC this week. Victor Quinn, who's a big match coming up against uh, Mustafa Saul uh, today. In fact, Gina Kennedy, who's on through to the next round, uh, she's back playing well again. And congratulations uh, to her winning uh, the mo her most recent event. Uh, just recently, I think it was the Carol Way Mueller uh, Classic event. Uh, congratulations to her for that. Uh, now, uh, for Open Squash, their second New York City Center, Open Squash 
FIDI is opening pre-sales this week with offers that will get you bouncing through the door to check out their new, their brand new state-of-the-art facility with eight new courts, including a glass court for daily use, a shiny new squash-centric gym, and the full range of classes and clinics. You have to come and enjoy at Bryant Park Open Squash FIDI Fidi promises to be another sold-out squash center. Here's the deal. Sign up today, confirm your membership with your first monthly payment, and the first 100 signups get two months free or get one month free if you sign up for the FID or FIDI before we open. So check that out with Open Squash. You can visit their website at OpenSquash.org. Now you're going to really enjoy this episode 250 on the 25th anniversary of the Tournament of Champions former world number one, six-time finalist of that event, three-time British Open, World Open, and Commonwealth Games gold medalist, Nick Matthew. Jerry, how you doing? Hey. Hey, how are you? It's been a minute. Uh, I think it's uh, you were on one of my earlier episodes about four years ago. I think it was F- F64 I did my research. We're on, we're on a big one here. This is 250. F two fifty. So my bad for taking it. It's been uh, that long to get you back on. Congratulations on that. That's um, amazing. And we're doing it during the twenty fifth anniversary of the tournament of champions. So there's something in the two and five. There it is. Yeah, I'll have to use that to to pimp this this uh, episode. <laughs> so not that I'm going to need it, uh, given that you're on, but. Uh, you know, you've been, uh, you know, since then, since that time, I think it was right around when you retired, it would have been, uh, you've been heavily into the coaching game. You've got your own academy. You're, you've been working with uh, England Squash uh, most recently at the British Junior Open. Um, you've also been working with guys like, I guess, Declan James, um, Nick Wall. Uh, so just in in terms of a thumbnail, you know, given the, the time that uh, we haven't spoken to you, and for for everybody, just a thumbnail. What what's uh, retirement from the PSA uh, been like for you? Yeah, um, a lot to uh, think about in that period of time. Um, it's crazy when I think that it's coming up five years this summer since I retired. Um, it's kind of one of those where where's that time gone and. My little girl, for example, was about three when I retired. She's eight now. That time just goes so fast. Anyone who's got kids will tell you that. Um, and I think, I don't know if I knew when I, when I first stopped that I was going to go sort of, you know, dive as deep as I have done into the coaching side. You know, I think I kind of was going to have a year or two where I just sort of see, had a look at where I, I thought my sort of passions lied or strengths lied and, and take it from there. And I sort of went down that rabbit hole, if you like, and I've kind of stayed down it. And it's been a busy four years, like one of the steepest learning curves you could ever imagine. Um, I think possibly, you know, we're all guilty of thinking, oh, you know, anyone who had a good career themselves can just go straight into coaching and they're going to make an instant difference. And it's just not as simple as that, you know, like, you think you're coming up against um, other coaches and, and you know, you, you're talking to other coaches who might not have had a, a stellar playing career, but have been doing the coaching side of things for 25 years. Mm. So they know exactly their 
fortes. They know exactly kind of how to position themselves and how to um, deliver things. And they just become masters of their trade because they've been doing it for such a long time and they've learned through ups and downs over many years and, and, and end up where they are. So it's been an incredibly steep learning curve for me. You see it in, say, the Premier League in, in football that, you know, Steven Gerrard, Frank Lampard have kind of, you know, been battling away trying to get to the the top of the management and it, and it's and it's tough you know some of the guys have been the best managers recently you I'm thinking your Mourinho's your your Klopp's uh, your Wenger's kind of weren't incredible players they kind of just mastered their profession so I tried to see it as a as a different career as opposed to a continuation of the same one mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, I mean, I look back at the, the the great coaches in Canada that that we've had. You might you obviously you know of Mike Way, and uh, uh, there there are several throughout the country. I mean, they weren't necessarily, uh, and he wasn't necessarily a, a great player back in the UK. He was a good player, and he did well in Canada too. But an incredible uh, coach with a lot of uh, uh, pedigree. But the the learning uh, curve for you, as you were saying. You've got a player in the New York, uh, in New York right now, the TOC. I think Nick Wall. You've been working with him uh, a fair bit, and uh, he had a really uh, promising uh, start to the event and uh, and a close call against uh, Victor Quint. He took out Shah Jahan, um, who's been more. I, I would say he, he was playing some really good squash at the end of last year. He's kind of slowed it down a bit at the start of this year, and then Victor, uh, obviously in the top ten right now. And he was Nick was up two one in that match. He must have must have been uh, sort of gutted to lose that in the aftermath. But uh, you know, given um, how well you you must have thought he played pretty well given the circumstances. Yeah, you know, Nick, um, we're incredibly proud of him. You know, he's I've pretty much known Nick since he was in nappies. You know, I played with his dad. Uh, it's another way of showing my age. Um, used to do track sprints with his dad, play team matches. His dad beat me in the club championships finals of our club in Hallamshire, Sheffield, about five years in a row. I couldn't get the better of his dad. So young Nick was always running around the squash club. So we knew him from a young age. And the head pro of my academy, Neil Guyery, coached Nick since he was 12 years old. He actually had a double-handed backhand that um, Neil... Yeah, um, but they sort of worked super hard to kind of um, on that to kind of saying, look, with the long term in mind, and and there was a lot of short term issues with that. Neil tells a story that Nick used to come from a junior tournament, you know, completely downcast, downbeat. Sort of, oh, all the kids are just picking on my backhand because they know that I'm struggling with it. When he was trying to change to one handed, and mm-hmm. Neil just said, you know, you've got to stick at it. Um, you're getting loads of, the more they hit it there, see it as a positive. They, you're getting loads of practice and that'll get better quicker. And, and to be credit to, credit to Nick, he never put two hands on his racket ever again, you know, and he, and he worked hard. And, and since he was 16, he was been, that's when I, I launched my academy and he was kind of our first scholarship player. So we've gone on a journey with him. And I think that's the beauty about um, Nick is it's kind of hard as a coach to, inherit a player who's already a certain way through their journey. It's possible, 100% of it is, but I just love that whole take going on a journey with them from kind of, even if it's not that extreme like Nick, even if you get a player when they're kind of coming out of the juniors and you can kind of go on that full journey with them and there's an element then of building trust 
time is a bit more on your side. There's a bit more patience and you can really kind of get to know each other. And then that ultimate trust is, is there. Um, and kind of what he's doing now, he's still got a long way to go to kind of get to the top, but he's shown glimpses that he's playing at that level. And, um, you know, the next step is getting a bit more consistency to do it kind of week in, week out and maybe get a bit of a morale boosting win over one of those top 20 players. And, and you know, I believe with his style of game, he's, he's attacking. People don't like playing him when he's playing well. Um, you know, those lefties are always uh, tricky customers. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he's, he's, um, he's a lovely young man. And, you know, along with the other guys that, play, uh, that I coach, you know, we, we, we're trying to foster that environment where they're all thriving and we're enjoying it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, who else are, I know you're, you, you had been working or, or maybe still working with Declan, uh, James as well. Is, uh, is he, uh, injured or? Deck? Yeah. He, he, I mean, 2022 was just the biggest roller coaster year that I've ever mm-hmm. known for any squash athlete. You know, he struggled with his body various times, you know, in and out, um, fought back, won the Commonwealth gold in doubles, an amazing achievement. You know, he was fighting hard to make the team for singles, but didn't quite get there and then managed to win the doubles with James Wilstrop, which anyone who's seen doubles at the Commonwealth Games, it's it's intense. Yeah. It's hard, you know, you know, just because let's say you could have the number one and number two in the world at singles playing together and there's zero guarantee that they're going to win. You know, doubles is just a completely different game. So for those two to come out on top was incredible. Um, had that high and then was just getting back to his fitness. He started the season really well, was looking good again, playing kind of that top 20 level that he's seen that he could do before and and then got ill, was out kind of ill for a month and then ruptured his Achilles tendon. So he's out kind of for the best part of like nine months now. Um, but... Again, he's such a level-headed guy. I have no doubt that he's going to do all the right things and come back. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've spoken to him a couple of times, and that's exactly. He's very level-headed. He, you know, he's a smart guy, and he and he works hard. He loves the game, and uh, obviously, working with you, he's got to have, uh, you know, the past. Both of you have that passion. So once he gets back, uh, hopefully, he'll be back healthy and back to that top twenty, like you were saying. But uh, but Nick, uh, just uh, just briefly in terms of the the TOC, it's an event that you know very well. It's a tradition in on the squash calendar. I, I can remember, as you know, I'm a, I'm a JP fan. I remember back when he, I think he kind of hit the sort of the, one of the the first big tournaments he won was the TOC in '96. I think he beat Craig Rowland in, in the final uh, of that event. And from then on, it was, uh, you know, he started his uh, ascendancy. But what is it about the TOC uh, for you uh, that brings back such uh, such special uh, memories? Yeah, it's just the buzz, isn't it? I think JP, does he still hold the record for number of wins? I think four wins, I think, is uh, JP, I think, yeah. still sits on top of that tree. I've got a bit of an unwanted one there that I've actually reached the most finals of TOC with six Right, but I only won it. I only won it once. So uh, I was about to say the finals night has an incredible. The finals night down there, you walk in the terminal and the buzz is just incredible. Um, but maybe it got the better of me a few times. I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, for any young player, I mean, Nick Wall, we just mentioned this was his first trip to New York 
this year, never mind first TOC. And his first round was at the Harvard Club, as you mentioned, against Shah Jahan Khan, a really tough match. And But that incentive for winning that match was the glass court at mm. Grand Century. You know, he won that first round and, you, should, you know, I've never seen like laser-like focus going on because that incentive was just there for any young player. You've seen that that court on TV and to play on it, you just can't do it justice until you played on it. You know, he Nick's not really someone who shows his emotion, but I think what summed it up was a young player, he just came off and just the experience just blew him away and he's just sort of hungry for more of that now. Um, yeah. You know, that buzz, it doesn't matter whether you're playing at midday, or nine o'clock at night. The night matches are extra special, I think, because, uh, you know, there's a few people maybe had a few beers. Um, <laughs> so it always adds to the atmosphere. Yeah. But even a 12 o'clock match, you know, it's always pretty full. The atmosphere, everyone just loves having us there and it's so unique. Um, yeah, any, any, it's a little bit like Mecca, I think. Any, anyone who's a squash fan, you've got to do the pilgrimage to the TOC. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I know all my buddies. I mean, they, they tried to get me to go last year. I just couldn't get away from work. But they, I think they had a compliment to like an amateur event, uh, right? Uh, was it last year? I'm not sure if they still had that. Uh, There's always stuff going on. You know, they've got the college matches going on. They've got the big doubles tournament that's kind of in the city at the same time. I think it's a clever idea in the first round or two to use the clubs around the city to kind of spread the word that it's, you know... Um, going on around the city and yeah, it goes from strength to strength. 25 years, John Nimick and his team just do an unreal job. Yeah, definitely. Uh, lots of great squash uh, around that area too. And just in terms uh, of the event, we won't spend too much time on this, uh, but uh, uh, Mustafa Saul, obviously uh, world number one now, and then you've got uh, everyone else definitely gunning for that uh, with the excitement of New York. Uh, what do you see uh, as the, and also for the women uh, as well, uh, how do you see uh, this one playing out on the men's and the women's side? Oof, yeah, I think, um, you know. Like Joey Mustafa's... asking uh, PJ to give his tip, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I won't sit on the fence like PJ. Um, <laughs> I think I'll, um, yeah, I think, look, Mustafa's playing some un unreal squash at the moment. Um you know, there's there's obviously some extra curricular stuff that people have that's been well documented. But just if you just take the squash on its own, the level is, uh, you know, there doesn't look to be too many chinks in the armor there. I think when you're watching, you're always thinking, where can you look at to exploit? And you know, you 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 could look for a long time under a microscope, and you're kind of struggling to find something at the moment. And that's incredible for someone so young. Um, I fully expect him to play Paul Collin in the final, particularly now that Mo's been knocked out. I think that um, Mo, perhaps just busy back end of the year, um, played so well. I voted for him as player of the year because I just think to kind of not come back because he's always been there or thereabouts, but to sort of to be starting winning back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back major titles again. Because I know once you do get into your 30s and, Mo's only early thirties, but he's had a lot of squash in his in his legs over the years. He came up such a young age, and you know sometimes at that age, you you just have bad days at the office. You know, you just have a bad movement day. You just feel flat one day, and you almost can't explain it. Like, well, I felt quite good, and then just had a bit of bad performance. So I'm sure he'll put it to one side. 
um, because that consistency gets harder as you get older. Um, but he'll come back. But I think seeing as though he's out, I can't see past, uh, you know, Ali's obviously injured. Um, I can't see past Mustafa and Paul final. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, Again, for a young man, it's very difficult to win everything. So I might have my money marginally on Paul this week, just be, just purely by the law of averages. I'm not basing that on anything scientific. Um, on the girls' side, um, yeah, I mean, the three of them, Shabini, Goha and Hania, I mean, you could throw a blanket over them and there's nothing between them. You know, nothing between them when I watch some of the other girls, obviously, doing well. It's great to see Gina back, for yeah. example, from an English point of view. But I think those three are just a little step ahead at the moment. And I, I again, I said I wouldn't sit on the fence like PJ, didn't I? But I actually kind of am. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go with uh, Shabini this week again, just because I don't think she's, you know, Greg's there with her. I know she's enjoying working with Greg. And um, she's not one... I feel like for her, she's kind of a mini drought at the moment because uh, she's used to winning all the time and she's not, I don't think she's won one for a little while. It's been Hania's turn and Goha's turn. So I think I'm going to go with Shabini. Uh, well, uh, I agree with you on the first one. I'm going to go with uh, Cole as much as I like uh, us all and how much, uh, uh, as I, you know, I agree with you, he's playing super, super squash aside from the extracurriculars. Um, and I also think, um, we'll talk about this later, I think uh, everyone who's competing against him, they have to, in my estimation anyways, they got to pick it up a little bit physically. And Paul definitely has that ability uh, to do that. He has the game to be able uh, to do that. And I think he probably will. And um, on the women's side, I, I've got to go with uh, um, Hanya. I'm not sure. That maybe she's not quite ready for that stage, but uh, she's certainly shown she's you know she's capable of winning these big events she's already won a few so those are my picks um so we neither of us sat on the fence there nick we're good all good <laughs> see how it plays out but uh uh really enjoyed the 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 piece that you wrote uh, uh that you had on uh, squash mad about the british junior open it was a fantastic event it got a lot of uh, publicity uh i think more so than any other british junior open i'm not sure why but it just seemed to be Maybe it was a time of year where there was nothing else much going on in the squash world, but it, it was definitely out there. So um, one of the let's talk about the positives first. Uh, one positive for England was obviously the all, all boys uh, under nineteen final. Uh, now I'm not sure if you heard Rob Owens' uh, pod on my uh, on my podcast, but he commented uh, there that last year's World Juniors final in the under nineteen it was Rowan uh, Damming and Finley, uh, the English player. Although it was great to see, he he said it was more to do with a dearth of uh, talent in under nineteen uh, as opposed to uh, you know there not being uh, any Egyptian talent. So would that be a fair assessment of the British uh, men's under nineteen, or do you do you see it differently? No, I think look, you know, first of all, the Egyptian talent, you know, is obviously there. I mean, the under eleven, under thirteen level was incredible. Um, you know how they're so good, so young. I know they took into one of the Egyptian coaches, and they, you know, they they start so young, but they train in kind of every day so young. They're not like the kind of 
British players or I'm not sure the American players who are doing multiple sports until a certain age. So uh, and then specialise later. Perhaps there's also perhaps a bit of physical maturity comes through later in you know different backgrounds. So. When it comes to under nineteen, I think look, it's clearly not a top top generation for Egypt in the under nineteen. I watch their players closely, and they're not bad players. But when you look at the days gone by with your, you know, Asals and you know, double world junior champions like Marwan and Mohammed and Dasuki didn't even win a world juniors, and um, you know the levels that have come through Ali, obviously. Um, and I'm just talking on the men's side. The girls are a lot stronger, of course. Um, you know, they've got probably three girls who are all top 50 standard wise. Um, so they were strong. Um, but on the boys side, it's probably not the strongest Egyptian era. I think it's fair to say their guy who's close to their top player is very young. Um, with Khalifa, um, um, sorry, Zakaria, um, getting confused there. Zakaria, you know, I was surprised he played in the under 19s because I know that he's eligible for one of the younger age groups. Okay. Um, and he, he looks probably their top prospect, but he's still very young. But the English guys, you know, they took their opportunity. You know, Finn's been getting so much experience playing kind of men's squash. You know, every time I look, he's in a PSA or he's playing league or, you know, he, he's just got so much squash background. I know Josh Taylor, his coach, is trying to get into balance his schedule and, and, and work a little bit more on the other side of things like the S&C and buy into that a little bit more. But he's just a... He's just a squash player and he's a great squash player. He's kind of um, very instinctive, but also very tactical aware, tactically aware, I think. And he, he kind of trusts his attacking instincts. And then, you know, it was great to see Jonah get through. I think he struggled in the early rounds a little bit uh, with his body and um, fought through incredibly well. And obviously he's got the sound mind of Rob in his corner, helping him tactically. And he's got another year as well. So it was great for England squash to see um, those guys coming through and it's not always um, a sign of what's to come you know there's been plenty of people who've been good juniors and then not gone on but if you do look down those sort of list of British Junior Open winners it does give you an indication of who's going to go on you know I think there's a real high chunk of particularly once you get to the under 19s there's a real high chunk of people who do well in that who go on to bigger and better things yeah, it does bode well, definitely. Uh, you can't argue with that. You know, having two British uh, boys in the final there, that's got to be something to be excited about. Uh, and Josh... And it was so clean as well. The match, you know, you mentioned my article and some of the some of the squash was, was, was tough to watch, you know, overly physical matches, lots of screaming and shouting between the players, complete anarchy, really. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, across the board and, you know, coaches describing backcourts as battlegrounds and, you know, it won't, it won't what we want to see. Um, and that boys under 19 final was, you know, there was like two lets in the whole match and, and they got on with it. They played a great match. I watched their British junior closed final as well, commentated on that one and for England squash and the guys just get on with it and they played tough, hard squash, but, you know, less of the histrionics and, and uh, it was good to see. Yeah, well, we're seeing, unfortunately, uh, a lot of that on, on the Pro Tour. So that's uh, obviously, uh, you know, when you're young and you you have uh, you want to play like certain players and you see them playing like that, obviously you're you're bound to uh, to copy what they're doing. But 
Uh, one another highlight uh, aside from England was the U.S. Uh, they won their first ever um, male uh, age group under eleven, I think it was. Carlton under thirteen. Under yeah, thirteen. Under thirteen. Uh, yeah. Carlton Capella. So, uh, do you know uh, Carlton? And uh, maybe is this uh, result sort of representative of uh, of what might be what we might be in store for with U.S. squash a few years down the road? Yeah, I think. Uh... First thing to say, it was only a matter of time. I think, you know, they've had um, some female winners. I know way back when, when it was in Sheffield, Michelle Quibell, who was from Atlanta, and I stayed with her family when I played a PSA down in Atlanta. She won, and that was kind of seen as being out of the blue for US squash. And, you know, since then, they've you know, they've got stronger and stronger. Um, but, you know, for Carlton to win, my good friend Luke Butterworth from LB Squash coaches, his team coach, Carlton, and Luke actually sent Carlton, Christian, and then Caroline Fouts, who's in the under-19s, over to Sheffield for a few days uh, before the tournament, actually. So I got to know the kids well. And, you know, um, I was telling all the pros, I got Carlton on with a few of the pros that I work with. And uh, under 13, he didn't look out of place. So we knew he was good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, he's hitting with players who were kind of top 150, 200 in the world. And, Kind of looked uh, like he was getting into he was getting into them, you know, ruffling a few feathers. So we <laughs> knew he was uh, good, and you know, big credit to US squash to those teams. You see, you only have to look at the kind of coaches that come over US squash, the sort of pedigree and caliber of those coaches. You know, like your Nick Taylors, and you know, recently Wala Hindi's Luke himself, um, Lauren Elriani, Linda Elriani. Um, the list goes on. I'm probably missing a few there. Charlie Johnson, all people who've got the, their own academies that are building up juniors. And yeah, there's a lot more of this mindset now that college doesn't end the journey. It might just be the sort of beginning of the journey, actually. You know, people are going on from college now, whereas in my day, college was the end point. So, you know, it's only going to get stronger and stronger. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you look at the the men's college game, and they probably these guys. Uh, we'll talk about uh, the current group: uh, the, the the Andrew Douglas, Timmy Brownell, uh, Shah Jahan, Todd Harity, those guys. Uh, but they're looking at their peers when they played uh, at college, and they they see Ali, they see Yusuf, uh, they see uh, Gina, Amanda. They're all reaching the very highest levels of the game. So, I mean, it seems like a great breeding ground for for the. You know, some really high-level squash, that U.S. squash, uh, the college squash team as well. No doubt you've seen the likes of Ali and Ali. Amanda uh, coming through to the very top of the game now. So, you know, Gina's done it. Um, so, yeah, it's it's kind of proven now. You, you mentioned a Mike Way earlier, someone who's obviously mastering his profession over many, many years. And David Palmer's a college coach. Yeah. John White, so on and so forth. So, um, yeah, it's, um, if I had my time again, I probably would have considered it too. Uh, whereas when 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 it was my time, there was no doubt in my mind I wanted to go straight on the tour. But now, what what fantastic options for young players? Oh, absolutely, and uh, I'm sure there'll be opportunity down the road for you to uh, enter the uh, the college coaching ranks. Uh, some of these guys, uh, like uh, Paul Asciante and uh, Mike Way, I mean they're. I mean, those are big time gigs at like a Yale or a Harvard or Princeton. Uh, you wouldn't consider uh, uh, doing anything like that, Nick, down the road? Um, not right now. You can never say never. Um, but, 
you know, right now, young family, we settled in England. You know, it's a big passion of mine to keep working with my own kind of academy at home and, and linking that closer and closer to England squash. Got a great relationship with, say, David Campion and England squash and Dunlop in the UK, my home club. Um, I do enjoy coming out to the US. You know, I'm currently here at Berkshire School and, and I enjoy, you know, love what I do. Um, that would be that would be a, a, a full-time life change, and I'm not sure I'm quite ready <laughs> for that. Yeah, especially if you have young family and you're grounded. Yeah, it's a, t- it's a huge decision. I guess if you're younger and you're, maybe you're just married and without kids or, you know, very, very young kids, then that's a different story. But uh, Possibly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, just in terms of the American guys, I just wanted to get your opinion on them. Uh, Andrew Douglas, Timmy Brownell, they're all, and Shah Jahan, even uh, Todd Harity, he's leading the, he's the Wiley veteran, I guess. Uh, what What's your impression about, uh, I mean, they're all, it seems to me like this might be the, the best group that they've had, just given where they all are. Like, they're all sort of right there and around 50 and 40 in the world, and they're all capable. They've all shown that they're capable of winning matches against guys ranked higher than them they just haven't done it consistently yeah they're right there aren't they and the, you know the girls have definitely got the bragging rights at the moment you know yeah. silver medalists in the world um finishing above england unfortunately <laughs> um but i was actually messaging spencer this morning because i was giving him some uh, some grief because all he puts on his instagram story is them doing weights and that's Spencer climber and Spencer Lovejoy. Yeah, he's. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like Spencer. He he kind of when he first signed for Dunlop, Dunlop asked me to do a bit of research on him to see whether he was a good kind of character and whatnot. So I got to know him a little bit. He came and trained with us once or twice in England, and I, be, I was giving him some. Um, I was giving him some grief today. I asked him whether he plays any squash or whether he's just in the gym all day. So I think once they do it, once they do a bit more solo practice and get Bengi to get them on court a little bit more rather than just becoming, you know, buff in the gym, then they'll they'll really break through. Yeah, they want to have legs like Bengi. That's the problem. Well, yeah, I mean, don't we all? <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, just in terms of, I mean, you, you sort of hit on it uh, just briefly, but there were a couple of uh, sort of uh, aspects that you found disturbing at, at the British Open. And um, uh, one of which was uh, your S- uh Sort of your estimation that uh, you know, coaches and uh, were berating officials. Um, so could you just uh, just sort of elaborate on what you were? I mean, obviously you were there, right? And um, sort of what was going on there, and what did you find? Uh, I know you you mentioned it earlier, but what did you find most disturbing about that? Look, you know, I think um, players when you're on the court, and I, I think I can. I'm qualified to say this because I've been there and I've, I've, I've sort of played aggressively on the edge at times. You know, lights in completely fairly. You know, never took a double bounce in my life. You know, played hard but played fair. But in terms of sometimes that aggression, if you're on the court, adrenaline, emotions, wanting to win more than anything, you know, those emotions can get the better of you. There's no doubt about that. So. I kind of have less problem with someone just stepping out of line on the court because they're young people. As you get more experience, hopefully you'll tone that down. You'll find where you sit on that spectrum. Some people are a James Wolstrop and they are calm. Other people can't play like James Wolstrop. You know, people, anyone who says 
oh, you should be more like James Wallstrop. That's not, that's kind of not a thing because that will not suit everyone. They could be like James Wallstrop and just lose every match. Some people need a bit more outward fire in their belly and that's absolutely fine as long as it is channeled or does it you can see where it's channeled being channeled and, and educated and you're learning you know but I can completely forgive because I've been there people who just sometimes get overzealous in the moment with with all that's going on with the emotions what's sort of not okay is when you're sat kind of on the bench and and you're getting caught up in those emotions I understand sometimes as a coach you work hard with a player I think particularly maybe in junior level there's that little bit more of kind of parenting vibe when you're a coach because you kind of are young people and you're whereas when it's a senior pro you can maybe step back and and you know that they're okay you know they're going to deal with it they're experienced in the in the juniors is perhaps a bit more emotion sometimes with coaches so I understand that but the coaches have got to set an example on the side because how are the players ever going to learn if if they're kind of, you know, the coaches are screaming, you know, he's just seen a sales dad get banned, you know, they're turning around every point screaming at the ref and pressurising the referee in. And look, the referee wasn't fantastic. You know, um, you got a lot of inexperienced referees there that they need to get more experience. The same referees can't referee all the time. It was tough. We need to improve that side, but, we can't just blame it on the referees not being good enough. You know, it has to be a team effort. And, you know, instance just heard of today where there was a big high school match yesterday and one of um, the coaches of the home team, there was match point to his team. Um, The crowd went mad on the last point and the referee, which is one of the players, got pressurised by the home team and gave a, a no-let. So that was match. Ooh. And it wasn't a no-let. The coach of that team stepped in and we said, no, we don't want to win in that manner. We're going to play a let. And so they did. His team ended up losing that match <laughs> and that was a deciding match. Uh, but he said, no, that's 100% the right oh, thing class. to do. Yeah. And that's just class. And yeah. look, I'm, that's an extreme example. I'm not <laughs> expecting the coaches to start refereeing the match. However... You know, that just seems to have just completely gone out the window. Like, we're so far from that that those instances just stand out so much more. Um, What I would say so far of the TOC that I've watched, particularly on the glass court, the behaviour has been impeccable. It's been a lot better. Um, There was a slight, you know, a Sal hit Patrick. Patrick didn't make a big deal of it, so we moved on. What is slightly troubling as well is the backcourt matches. A lot of players are sort of behaving in a certain way on the backcourt because they know it's not being filmed by Squash TV. They they know there's no video review, so they can get away with stuff. And then they come onto a glass court and they put a completely different persona on. So that's a bit of an issue when you're coming through the tournaments as well um, because a lot of players are coming from the juniors, they get away with things and they carry that on. And it's not until you get maybe onto the bigger stage where it starts to get a little bit more highlighted. Um, I know you mentioned to me earlier um, about someone saying that Asal wasn't the worst culprit. You know, there's lots of other people who are doing worse things. And I think it's because he's on that stage, so it's showcased. Um, There's no doubt about it. He needs to improve, but there's lots of things happening behind closed doors, as it were, that, that needs to be looked at. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, you did mention, uh, Nick, and I just wanted to follow up on this, that the officiating 
isn't always good. Uh, I mean, it just seems to me that the how officiating has been the same over the years. It, it hasn't gotten worse. I, I wouldn't say. I mean, I think they're going through a funny period right now in officiating, aren't they? Because uh, they're implementing more sort of try to play the ball and they're, they're changing a bit of, uh, in terms of the way they they adjudicate less and strokes. And that's the, uh, at least at the pro level, and maybe even uh, it, it trickles down into the juniors and at the club level. Yeah, like 100%. And I think the, the thing with squash is no one's ever going to agree on the decision. It's <laughs> so subjective. You know, so in my mind, it's like we need to stop trying to fix that because it's never going to be fixed. You know, you and like you could not just you and I, you could get the top 50 players in the world and show them 10 decisions and you'd get you'd get all sorts of opinions on whether it should, you know, you know, certainly 50 50 decisions. We can all agree on what's maybe like an easy stroke if someone hits it straight back to themselves in, in the middle of their chest you know, or if they hit a clear winner and then cleared the ball and the other opponent was nowhere near it. I'm not talking about the easy ones. I'm talking about the kind of 50-50 ones, mm. you know. No one's ever going to agree on that. So my whole thing is it's not about the decision itself. It's about how you manage the game as a referee. So how you talk to the players, how you kind of educate them through the match. You know, I can't help looking towards rugby as a sport which just gets refereed incredibly well because the referee is basically coaching the captains through the game. Well, look, and... sorry, sorry, I just want to stop you there because you raise a really interesting point. Now, I'm not a rugby person at all, but what I have in matches that I have watched, uh, you always see uh, the players, when they speak to the referees with the utmost respect, I mean, they, they're, they're kind of just, they listen to them and then they walk away, Right. And it's quite funny because they're often twice the size of the ref as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, but yeah, there's that respect. But the referees always talking them through it, so they won't go straight in. I think in squash we've tried to eradicate the cheap let. You know, you know that seems to be something that you know. So the line between it being a stroke or a no let has become so tight. You know, so. You know, and for me, in that area, it still exists to let. You know, if it is so tight that you don't know which it is, then it's a let. Um, yeah. Because otherwise, we get many, many years ago, I don't know if you remember, there was something called the Pro Squash Tour, PST, that sort of tried to come on the scene for a bit to rival PSA. And their whole thing was there was no lets. So it was either a stroke or a no let, every decision. So the idea was that it got you to kind of move and play the ball and, and this, that, and the other. But PSA at the time kind of, you know, it was belittled. It wasn't kind of, you know, thought that it was a bit of a joke. Whereas we've kind of gone more down that route a little bit ourselves. Um, I think I think the, the principle, cutting out these cheap lets, was a good one. Yeah, no one wants to see a thousand lets in a match. You know, you watch squash drums kind of 10, 15 years ago, it's probably too many easy lets. Yeah. But what we don't, I think by encouraging, for example, people to go around and interference and play the ball otherwise it's a no let we then encouraged a bit more blocking again because people think oh i can get my i can make this a no let if i just kind of nudge them out or whatever and it's actually for me over the last couple of years it's backfired that principle of getting rid of cheap lets it's backfired and now the, no one knows what the rules are anymore um 
and we need to go back to kind of making it simple again. Um, yeah, it's tough. It's tough, but I think it comes back to the game management. You know, in the we don't need to leap in second decision of the match. We don't need to leap into a harsh stroke or a no let. You know, we can just talk to the players and say, look, let's just use Mustafa Salah as an instant. You know, if he gets too physical in the first game, don't, you know, if you reward, if you go one way or the other, then it's very difficult to come back from that. There's a long five, potential five games ahead of you. Where do you go from there? You know, whereas at least if you start with a let, you can go one way or another, depending on if that instance keeps happening. So you can kind of use the rugby analogy again. You can say, look, guys, I've noticed this is happening. If it happens again, then I'm going to punish you. Mm. And not only are you kind of them next time, if you do punish, the player almost can't complain because you've kind of given them a heads up. And what you're also doing through that process is educating people who are watching, the people in the venue, the people watching on Squash TV, they know your line of thinking. So then when it happened, you're not just let straight into a red... It's like the equivalent of a red card in the second minute of the match, some of the decisions, you know. So it's not that I disagree with the decision in terms of um, so much black and white, just the decision in an isolated fashion. It's more just the context, the management. That's what I would be looking at if I if I was of course I'm not but if I was PSA that's what I'd be looking at purely on the basis we're never going to agree on the actual decision itself so can we go a little bit more towards that game management that'd be my mm. yeah I, uh, but spoke with them. lots of people will disagree with that lots of people will disagree look a stroke's a stroke no matter what it is in the match and if it's a clear I'm not talking about the clear ones I'm talking about 50-50s I think early on first game you let it play out a little bit for me, and then you kind of if you and then you clamp down if it happens. It's like you know it clamps down. It's like if someone hits the other person with the ball. If it's kind of just accidental or one off, don't give a stroke because then you're almost saying, "Well, you can do it again." <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's like just if it's an accident, just give a let and then say, "Look, if it does happen again, and it rarely happens more than once in a match anyway." Then you can say, look, you're creeping across too much, so I do have to give a stroke against you this time. Or you can't play that cross court. That was a dangerous shot, so I'm not going to give you the point. I'm going to warn you for dangerous play. But usually on the first time, it's just accidental anyway, so just play that and get on with it. Absolutely. I was just going to say, uh, one uh, Marwan El-Sherbagi, uh, he mentioned, and I, I agree with him, that uh, I think it's Roy Gingell does that, what you were just explaining, uh, sort of... Uh, talking to the players, talking them through the match. He seems to do that uh, really, really well, um, especially against, uh, especially in matches with, um, with, with us all. And some of the, the other guys, the, the culprits who tend to get into a bit of, a bit of trouble with the referee. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure what you, you think about that, but. Uh, I must've missed those ones. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. That's what I figured. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I I mean, just in terms of what you're saying, though, coaching uh, or, or you know, talking the players through the process from the beginning and more, I guess, warming to the task uh, seems. To so be- look, the refs are all great guys. Look, your Roy's, yeah. your Johns, Jason Foster, Andreas. You know, the list goes on. Like, great, great guys. Love having them around. And 
you know, it's also trying to make their job easier. They've almost got a thankless task because they're never going to please everyone. And they're in the hot seat, you know, which other sport do you sit in amongst the crowd and you've got people kind of right next to you and you're in a, you know, it might be a, a supporter of one of the players right next to you kind of, you know, you don't have that in any other sport. So it's kind of intense, but yeah, to me, making their life easier, educate them. The other thing is I'd love to hear that dialogue between the referee and the video ref. Yeah, you yeah, know, absolutely. so actually on Squash TV, if you were watching and you could hear them saying, look, I gave a stroke because I thought that he stuck his leg out. So therefore he blocked his line. It was deliberate. Can you have a look at that for me on the replay? And again, you're educating the the crowd on what, or you know, the, the viewers on what you're looking at. So then they can say, oh, yeah, OK, yeah. So actually you could be saying it doesn't matter that it was a really good shot, that it was a potential winner the movement was not acceptable and that's why I gave the thing. Um, and what, what, what do you think? Um, a bit like, you know, they do that in cricket as well. When then it bowled down first, so you can hear it saying, right, did it pitch in line? Yes. Did it, was it going over the stubs? Yes. Was it, was it going to hit, you know, and then they just, and if it's a tight one where they're not sure what I love as well is then they stick with the original decision. So it has to be something that's clear and if it, and then you empower. You're not trying to overrule all the time the person who's in the hot chair because that's the hot seat because it's a tough position to be in. You you should be trying to empower them so that if it's not clear and obvious that they've made an error, just stick with the original decision. You don't need to you don't need to show 25 um, replays. Just get on with it. You know, I found the video review the new one to be fair. You know, the players now have four reviews in a in a match and then they get an extra one in the fifth if they want it. Uh, I found that confusing, to be honest. I was watching it TSC the other day and we couldn't keep a track on, you know, how many reviews, you know, Nick Wall was asking me in between games, how many reviews have I got? And I was like, I ain't got a clue. <laughs> you know, it's almost like as a coach now, you need to, I'm sure that, you know, the ref are keeping, but it just seemed like the ref weren't, the refs weren't sure either. You know, I think... Yeah. One a game is fine. We don't need an extra one in the tie break. You know, it's kind of you, if you've it's used it, you've used it. Just yeah, one, fine. one per game. Yeah, one per game. Simple. Don't give an extra one in the tie break. Just one a game, and that's simple. Again, we we seem to be complicating it for the sake of complicating it in, at the moment. Mm, yeah, exactly. Now, uh, I just got. I wanted to talk to you about the pro game uh, just a little bit, Nick. But be, before we do, uh, obviously, uh, Egypt dominated the British Junior Open, uh, as you mentioned. Eleven, I think it was eleven of the fourteen finalists uh, were Egyptian, um, and Kareem Darwish was telling me about uh, a junior event that they had had uh, just a couple of months ago. Months ago, nine hundred juniors in the event. <laughs> It ran over, uh, it was a week-long junior event, and obviously, uh, I would probably all 900 know how to play, uh, know how to play squash. So just wondering, uh, just in terms of uh, Egyptian squash, uh, uh, what can we learn from them? And what is it about maybe that we don't see a lot of, because we don't see a lot of their coaching, and uh, we don't know many of their big-name coaches that are over there. They're obviously, they're, they're doing something uh, really good. Obviously, yeah. I mean, one of the things I'd love to find time to do is to go over there and do a bit of kind of CPD and <laughs> go over there with a couple of the coaches who work for me and just watch and learn and immerse ourselves into what they do. Um, 
you know, I've kind of got a good idea, but just to see that attention, to go there and, you know, witness the attention to detail, um, you know, I know for a fact the intensity is high. You know, having done some work, albeit remotely for the best part, with Marwan, you know, he always wanted to spend more time in England, for example. You know, he always enjoyed coming to Sheffield, but probably in the two years we worked together, he actually came to Sheffield for about three weeks in total because he just almost was attracted back to Egypt like a magnet all the time because of the intensity of practice. You know, he'd have a feed in the morning with a coach and then in the evening he'd play Ali Farag or Tarek in a in a practice match and they're playing practice matches five times a week, uh, you know, best of fives. And it's it's not just a friendly either, you know, it's actually bragging rights and, and whatnot. So the, what I do know is the intensity is there. Um but yeah, I would love to go and I think there's no doubt they've got the numbers game as well, you mm. know, which the US is getting more and more with there's big entries in it. Um, so you're not going to match them probably on the numbers game in many places, but there's different ways to do it. You know, I saw, you see what France do, for example, where they never really have people in the finals of the BJO or in the kind of last four, you know, certainly probably not since Gaultier or you know, on the uh, Camille perhaps, but they've always got a steady stream of people kind of coming through to replace the ones that are at the top now and they perhaps identify key talent. And, you know, I watched a young French, like, for example, in the under-17s and I think he came like top 20, but he looked solid. You know, everything in his technique looked solid. He'd clearly been introduced to strength and conditioning, so his body looked like it was in good shape and he was you know the movements the strength of everything was good he wasn't you know sometimes juniors do junior movements where the kind of back takes over and you know these sort of thing and he looked strong he looked like a good head on his shoulders technically he was solid and you're thinking well this kid wasn't in the bgo but i bet you in three to five years he'd have been supported and he'll come through on the psa because they're not trying to match the numbers game that egypt have they're just kind of trying to cherry pick people with a bit of talent and then they invest in them and support them so I think there are different ways of you know in England we tried centralizing for a while it perhaps didn't it was good some good things about it but it perhaps didn't fit with our culture our system you know we're better when we have these little pockets perhaps in the UK but France do it a different way um but US do it a different way there are different ways to compete with the Egyptians but if you try to take them on at the numbers game or you, you're not going to win no that's I mean that's an impressive number 900 and I think the world is just saying scratching their head given you know the situation that squash is in globally we're trying to uh desperately uh grow the game but it's it's promising to see that it's you know in the shape that it's in in Egypt so um perhaps uh, in other parts of Asia as well well there's no doubt during you know during covid we know where would the tour have been without that support from Egypt, for example, you know, that's been, you know, I think we should, you know, it's important to kind of point out that that was just incredible at keeping things moving and, and, and continuing to go forward as well with that support. Absolutely. Uh, Nick, you've been great with your time. I just want to touch on a few things uh, in the program pro game. Um, now, obviously, uh, Mustafa saw he rose to number one. Inevitably, that 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 was going to happen. But when it happened, uh, didn't think it would happen this early in the season uh, with Ali's injury. Uh, it did. Uh, he won in Houston, and he's, in my estimation, you might agree, 
with this. He's probably the most polarizing figure I've ever seen in squash. Uh, I mean, he does have a lot of people love him, uh, but there are people who really dislike uh, the way he plays squash. I'm not one of them. I enjoy watching him play. Uh, I've had Rod uh, Martin and Rob Owen come on and give him a bollocking. Uh, but what are your thoughts uh, on the current world uh, number one? I know you. I mean, you spoke glowing of him earlier in terms let, of squash. So let me ask. Let me spin it to you. What is it that attracts you to him? Yeah. Then as um, a fan. Uh, first of all, I think he gets a bit of a bad rap. A lot of people say that he, you know, he he doesn't argue with referees. He turns around. He'll say something, uh, and he's very mild mannered with the officials. That's one uh, one thing that I, I really noticed, and a lot of people seem to say that he's hard. He argues with the referees. Well, he might he might question them, but he doesn't argue with them. Secondly, I think some players. I mean, there, he obviously does have issues with his movement. I'm not. I mean, I'm a good player, but I'm not one that might be able to pick up on it as well as you and, and the like people like Rob and, and Rod uh, do. But uh, sometimes I feel that players really sort of uh, exacerbate to the situation. Uh, I mean, what happened with Marwan, I'm not sure. Uh, it didn't look that bad to me, but he, he was obviously hurt, uh, but it didn't look that bad to me. And I think that happens quite a bit against him. Um, his theatrics after matches, he's gotten better with that. He, he waits, till the, <laughs> waits till the guy leaves the court before he takes his shirt off. Um, but yeah, I just think he gets a bit of a bad rap, especially when it comes. And he's just a he's a likable guy when you speak to him. True. Yeah. No, I think I take that on board. I think, firstly, um, I've got a problem with the aftermatch stuff. I think you see it in tennis. You know, that's his unique thing that he does. Don't have a problem with that whatsoever. I think, you know, over the years, squash could have done with a bit more showmanship. You know, people come off and they sort of put their hand up and thank the ref and walk off. And, you know, in tennis, they do a little bit more showmanship to the crowd and whatnot. And, you know, no problem with that. Sometimes it gets a bit carried away, but, you know, no problem with that whatsoever. I also agree, tremendous charisma off the court. You know, you look at his Instagram followers, uh, the amount that people take to him is clearly a big name um he's clearly popular i don't i think what i would say about uh, mustafa is you're either pro or against there's not many people in between and i think i'm the only person in the world who's in between i'm like undecided <laughs> i don't i'm i'm kind of the jury's still out for me because i do see the positives but then i do see the negatives um, but then all my dealings with him in terms of when you see him, um, if he drops you a text or he couldn't be more respectful, he couldn't be a nicer guy. So I don't know, like I can't find myself going in the hate column. But I also, every time I think, oh, maybe he's matured, he then does something again that I go, oh, I can't fully love him yet either. Mm. So I'm literally bang set in the middle currently and and hopefully he'll he'll, he'll send me one way or the other um, and <laughs> yeah. i would love to see from the other players less of this whining about it on social media i'm not sure what that is achieving other than letting mustafa I, I was talking to mohammed about this the other day and he just says that if if you notice mustafa has never misbehaved against mohammed once mm. 
You know, whenever they've played, there's always been a ridiculous respect there. And he knows that Mohamed just gets on with it. There's certain players that you know there's no point trying to get in their head because it's going to backfire. Yeah. And against him, he just gets on with it. Um, you know, against Paul, it's been quite okay like that. Other players have just sort of taken to social media and start complaining about it. And then maybe that's a bit of the day and age, but I'm sounding a bit like Roy Keane here, but it's kind of like deal with that in-house. You know, what are you, what are you going, you know, Tarek, when he, he lost to him and he wrote a five-page essay on Mustafa on social media. And then the other day he's, he's putting an American football helmet on there. And this is what I'm going to wear next time I play Mustafa. It's like Mustafa just must be laughing and think, oh, I've, I'm never going to lose this guy again because I'm in his head. You know, it's a bit pathetic, really. Um, you know, channel it. If you're frustrated by what he does, channel it in the right way. Um, think back to, I quite often ask myself, what would like David Palmer do? Hmm. <laughs> and, that's, you know, he's... That's what I was going to say. I mean, back in your day, I mean, you had guys like David Palmer, Pete, I mean, Pete was never that physical, but but Pete wouldn't put up with it. John White wouldn't put up with it. You definitely wouldn't put up with it. Uh, and so how would they have handled it? Was, well, there was kind of like a, a thing where you kind of give so, someone's going to try and play physically or, you know, block you out, whatever. You, you know, there was almost a kind of unwritten rule, like give them the benefit of the doubt once or twice. But then if it happens again, then you kind of give, you know, Palmer would <laughs> either give him a bigger block or put him through the front wall and then would almost look at him to say, Look, shall we continue down this route because I'm good at this? Or shall we just get on with it and play squash and cut all this crap crap out? You know, should we should we just play now? That was kind of my era, you know. There was if there was any shenanigans, people would just sort of go, Look, do we really want to go down here or should we just play squash? And more often than not, people just chose the latter and they just kind of looked at you and went, yeah, let's just crack on. And then the match was fine after that. Um, you know, and it's not it's not descending into... There was a few matches. I know Power and Palmer had a few that descended. But that was kind of the 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 principle behind it, at least, where you just sort of stand up. And it didn't need to be any shenanigans. It just needed to just, with your actions, just kind of be like, not whining about this, but let's just play squash. And it's a physical sport at times. I'm not advocating putting someone through the front wall, but just to, just let them know early on I'm here and let's just get on with it, you know. And that's that's how we were brought up, I guess, in our, in our generation. I remember playing John White a number of times and he's calling you all sorts. He's a good friend of mine now, but you almost had to earn his respect, yeah. <laughs> you know, as a young player coming through because he's... he's, he's you know, if you get in his way, he's not happy about it, you know, and he's, he's, mm. but they handle it in a different way. Maybe we didn't have social media in those days. Maybe, maybe David Palmer would have written about it on social media, but I doubt it. Yeah, we need a few more big Australians in the top 10. <laughs> no, I think people go about it in different ways, you know, mm. now it, it is different, but, you know, I'm not sure what good it did anyone you know Marwan has said that worked with him remotely for a couple of years and you know a lot of that was talking about the psychology and if I was advising him now I would have I would have been saying to him look channel that 
any frustrations you've got from that match, keep them to yourself, go away, use them to fuel the fire internally as to how you're going to beat the guy next time you play at squash. Not going on social media, sort of talking about it and doing an interview where it's a bit of a non-interview where you say, oh, he broke every rule, but they're not telling us what he did. You know, it just sounds a little bit like whining. I'd be saying to him, look, come on, Marwan, you know, grow up. Yeah, Asal was this. But also, if you put the ball in the middle of the court, if he puts the ball in the middle of the court, you're taking your space and vice versa. You're both at it. So then if you come off worse, then don't whinge about it. Go away and work on what you need to do to get better. And I'm sure that Rod, who is working with, is, is saying similar things because he's from the, that sort of old school. And, you know, go away and actually do something about it. Don't talk about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I, uh, I was surprised. I'm surprised. Maybe Rod knows that and, and, and maybe says that uh, to his players. But I, um, I'm just surprised. No doubt he is doing behind closed doors, you know, but you can't control what, you know, as a coach, you can't control what the player does 24-7. But, you know, I've no doubt that you're working on how you can improve your game, right? I once got blocked out by Wal El Hindi in the pyramids once and lost 12-10 in the fifth and he nudged me a few times and, and I just vowed to get my squash better so that I didn't put the ball in the middle anymore. You <laughs> hit it tighter yeah. to the wall. The last, it, it's a very simplistic approach, but if the ball's glued to the wall or high up in the in the sky or in the front corners, you know, moving into the space, bit of deception so that they're off balance, all these little subtleties, the person can't get in your way anyway. You know, I've never seen someone block when the ball's glued to the wall. So improve your own squash. Don't whinge about someone else. Yeah, that, I mean, just to me, I, I mean, like, like, you, like I said, I, I like uh, Asal. I, I do see uh, the issues that he has sometimes with his movement and the blocking, and it comes out a lot in big matches. And I, I'm, I'm not like I'm not on the fence. I'm more leaning that side, but I do see uh, the, some of the bad in it. Uh, but I, what I, what I'd like to see more of is players sort of going out there and not giving him fuel, like like you said. He he uses all this negativity from social media. I'm sure he uses it as fuel, and and they don't they don't seem to get it. He must be laughing to himself a lot of the time. He just knows that you know it's like ever since him and Tarek had that set to where Tarek complained, he's absolutely hammered Tarek the next four times they played. You know, it's never got that close again. He's always just wiped the floor with him. And, you know, is that just that Asal's improved or is he, you know, is, is there a psychological barrier there now? And I'm not picking on trying to pick on Tarek. It's just it's just one example, you know. Um, you know, hopefully my frank views are, are kind of... <laughs> I think when I was... I've always been someone who likes to speak my mind, but hopefully these days they're a bit more constructive rather than just a bit of a rant <laughs> no, definitely constructive this is uh, i've been kicking myself for not uh having you on at least two or three times uh, in the in the last four years uh i've been spending too much time contact. with rob owen been spending too much time with rob yeah 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 absolutely yeah uh but i just wanted to ask you i mean you uh when you were coming up and you were young uh i i mentioned uh when i sent you a message earlier i wanted to ask you about the the, the sweaty ball incident with jp and uh, I think uh, it might have been at, was it at the TOC? Uh, it was at the US Open, US actually. Open. Um, yeah, I don't know why I've got a 
I've always had a good memory for these important things. I'll I'll forget your birthday, but I remember a match from two thousand and what year would that have been? I reckon about two thousand five. Yeah, you were young on on the tour, and uh, JP took issue, and he almost sort of a it was almost like he was bullying you a bit. He can't he went right right up to you, sort of in your face, and you didn't budge. I think that that probably caught him off guard, and it sent him. Well, no, uh, I was many. You know, I've many things, but I'm not someone who wipes the ball on my shirt to try and make it skid. You know, let you know that was something that I, I made it very clear to JP, who I you know respect greatly. You know that nickel power rivalry when I was coming up. Wow, you know it was incredible to watch the the kind of contrasting styles and you know playing him. I kind of got a couple of good beatings off JP when I was young and just didn't know where the ball was going and kind of figured that. The one chance, you know, I think I beat him a couple of times when I was two love or two one down when I was coming up. And I really, you know, my my chance was to try and get stuck in and, you know, take a leaf out of Peter's book and make it physical, you know, try and make it tough. And, you know, yeah, he, I think I served and it must have it skidded off the sidewall, perhaps where, you know, the courts perhaps weren't as good as in those days, you know, perhaps where someone had wiped their hand or whatever and it skidded and he, he reckoned he missed it. Jonathan was a prima donna as well. He always loved to make a meal out of stuff as well. Let's not forget that side of it. So it might not have skidded at all. But, um, yeah, in no uncertain terms, he he uh, he, let, he he told everyone in the building that I'd wiped sweat on the ball, which uh, couldn't have been further from the truth. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that was a classic moment. Uh, I'm sure uh, a moment that obviously you haven't forgotten. But before you go, Nick, uh, just a couple of things. Uh, I do have a couple of questions from some of our uh, listeners here. Um, I got oh, I just got a cramp. Holy crap! I think, uh, it's funny because Jonathan cramped at the end of that match. You referred to as well. Stand up here for a second, Jonathan. That's you. You look like Jonathan Power. He um, he cramped at the end of that match that you're referring to. It's been a great and I managed to sneak him in the fifth because he cramped. So. Uh, there we go. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. No, I've been running. You're mimicking your favorite player there, Jerry. <laughs> That's Canadian, Jerry. We're weak. <laughs> um, but no, Tom uh, Tom McKay, uh, he's got a, a question uh, from Squash. A cousin called Tom McKay. I don't think it's the same one. It could be. Uh, he says, I've heard from former pros some regrets, uh, one of which relates to what they wished uh, they had done more in training. Um, uh, is there anything that you had wished you wished you had done more in training now that you, uh, if you look back on your career? Oof. I don't think so. I think the thing that jumps out to me is just when I was younger, my coach was always brilliant at me, like saying, you know, he basically, my first ever coach, Mark Hornby at Abidale, used to walk around, limp around because he was, his hips were gone. He said, look, if you don't stretch, this is what, if you don't warm up properly, this is what's going to happen to you. So he sort of scaremongered me into making sure I warmed up. But I probably warmed up the legs and the hips and the back, but not so much the shoulders, you know, and they take a hammering from hitting the ball. And I needed shoulder surgery halfway through my career because I kind of, had yeah a bit of a tear in there so perhaps I would have done a bit more upper body um but then again I learned so much in that period of time out that was instrumental in getting to the top so it's kind of yeah I wouldn't have wanted the surgery but it also 
was a was a crucial time in my career. Um, if I had one regret from my career, it's less something I was in control of, but it was more just not being able to play the Olympics. Mm. You know, not being able to be an Olympian. It, not so much about the training. I think you know that you can't look back and go, "I should have done more of that." You know, there's only so many hours of the week. You 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 do you do everything you can. You know, um, but. For me, it was, uh, yeah, just not being able to call myself an Olympian, particularly London 2012. That was, you know, home games. It was kind of my, some of my strongest years, 2012, I was up there. So that was that was the one thing that I could, I don't know if you want to call it a regret because I couldn't really do much about it, but that would be one thing that I'd change if, if someone gave me the opportunity to. Yeah, that's a sad story, isn't it? I mean, it's almost a foregone conclusion now that squash, uh, it just doesn't seem like it's going to happen. But back uh, during that time, there seemed to be a little bit of... We got close. Yeah, yeah we, we got, got close, I think. Yeah. yeah. So is there, do, you, do you see any way uh, that squash uh, going forward could potentially uh, get in? Or is it... Oof. That's above my pay grade now. (laughs) As you said, we got so close and then, I don't know, like because we get so close and it's been going on for so many years, I kind of get a bit deflated talking about it. So um, me and Daryl Selby did a tour last year and we did 10 events and we got asked that question 10 times. You know, (laughs) like um, by about the seventh time, we walked out as soon as someone asked that question or, or faked, we faked to walk out because we just kind of, yeah, you're just making stuff up. You actually don't. You genuinely don't know the answer to that. You know, with with the best will in the world, you can say all the right things, but we genuinely don't know. Well, the game certainly speaks for itself, and you know, I guess it's a there's a lot of cultural stuff going on or generational uh, stuff with break dancing and, and uh, mountain climb or rock climbing or whatever sports seem to be getting in these days. Uh, but uh, but the athleticism and, and you know. The history of the game uh, speaks for itself. So um, it's their loss, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, not just a, one more question. This one has to do with uh, Mustafa Saul, not in a negative way, just in terms of uh, Simon Bunter. I don't know if you know Simon, but uh, he I do. Would, yeah. Yeah. So he'd like to know what Nick Matthew would, uh, how Nick Matthew would play the new world number one Mustafa Saul. Gosh. I know you sent me this through this morning to have a think about, and genuinely, this might surprise you, genuinely, this is the, in the last hour or so is the first time I've actually thought about that. <laughs> I've never actually <laughs> thought about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I've coached a couple of players against him, like Declan and Nick played him in the BGO final under 19, but you've got to kind of frame it and, and towards their strength so you know Declan has got to do what Declan needs to do against him not what I would have done you know that's an important lesson I think to not confuse when you're a coach um it's interesting because I know um I saw Patrick play him the other night and you know he tried to lift it a little bit so that there was you know I thought that was a clever tactic I, I think one that I would have tried to adapt is to try and cut out maybe any shoulder height balls that he's going to kind of be able to take his space and volley is an incredible volleyer. Uh, you know, that lateral movement across the tees, cutting it off. He's got so many options. He makes you run a long way round to get round him. Um, so I'd be thinking about going high, uh, particularly on, and try and keep it down the backhand side and be very careful about when I did 
attack the space to the forward. Look, you don't want to just do a straight game, but I know Paul Cole's been patient down that backhand wall, perhaps without enough severity at times. It's just put chipping it up and down, and that's not really going to hurt him either. But when Patrick tried to lift it, Mustafa hit about four or five winners high on the backhand. He just plucked it out of the air. Yeah. So I was kind of looking at that saying, well, that's that's what I would have done. But then he's just slotted it in the nick. So I think sometimes you've got to say, look, it was the right tactic. But the other guy, if you're going to hit a winner from up there, then too good. Good luck to you. You know, like I'm going to keep doing it on another day. Maybe he's going to force a couple of errors. I'd be trying to sort of be strong around the middle. I think keep him down that backhand side, use a lot of height and then move him because he's a big guy. He does do a lot of big lunges at the front where he's kind of, he's, he's very dangerous on the counter-attack. But, you, you know, you've got to move him because otherwise, yeah, he's too good. Yeah, I, I mean, like you said, he's explosive uh, the way he moves around in, into the front and back corners. But I, I think, you know, if you were patient with that, you know, he's going to get a lot of balls back. But a, a guy like you, patient enough to not get overwhelmed by the balls that he gets back. And also, you, you were a guy, you lobbed the ball almost better than anyone. Like, you, that was one of your, your go-to shots, right? Yeah, I think, you know, you've know, you got to view it as an attacking shot rather than it being a lot of people use it as a last resort defensively. Um, you can turn defence into attack with that shot, get back on the volley on the next ball. Um, I mean, he would present, there's no doubt about it, even if you're at the peak of your powers, he would present an unbelievable challenge. You know, like Mohammed did when he was coming through, you know, coping with that intensity, uh, tactical, mental fortitude, you know, getting the balance right against the best players in the world is always on a knife edge. You know, that balance between being positive yet being patient is all the better players, the, the tighter that line is to get that balance right. And, um, he he would be incredibly tough to, to, and then you've got to kind of on top of that you've obviously got to as we discussed you've got to keep your head. Wow. Uh, you can't get distracted by anything. You've got to kind of be strong, let him know that you're there, but also not let the game get broken up because I think he does thrive on that. You you know you want to try and keep players continuous as possible. I think. Um. And yeah, mentally just be incredibly strong on there. Um, and it, I mean, there's a reason why he's well won at such a young age. It would be an incredibly, it's the biggest challenge in squash right now for any player, you know, and, and I guess if I was there, it'd be absolutely no different. <laughs> yeah, it's exciting times uh, uh, right now, Nick. And uh, Today, I really appreciate your time. You've been fantastic. You've broken down everything so well, uh, and I'm not surprised. Uh, just before you go, I know you've got a lot on your plate these days. So uh, you've got some stuff coming up with England squash and your, also your role with uh, the Berkshire School in Massachusetts. Uh, it's, uh, you're, you're there as a full-time, uh, uh, I guess, squash uh, running their program, I think now. Uh, and also the Roadshow. So uh, what's uh, before we uh, sign off, what's... What's up? What's coming up next? What's coming up? Um, going to pop back into the TOC before I go. I'm here at Berkshire School, just trying to grow their program post-COVID, you know, come up with a structure. I'm director of squash here now, so even when I'm remote, I'm trying to um, 
help them plan and build and, you know, work with people like Squash Skills and Dunlop behind the scenes to kind of work with their program. Um, what else? When I'm at home, I'm at Hallamshire uh, working with the club and working with my own academy there. Um, I'm working with England Squash, um, you know, working closely with David Campion. Um, going to be going to the men's world teams later this year um, as assistant coach to camp. So excited by that. Yeah. And lastly, yeah, with Dunlop, um, you know, trying to keep that amazing brand in the forefront, the road shows, the Jonah Barrington style thing, which was one of the things that inspired me. I love that because it was one of the things that inspired me to take squash further was just being around Jonah when he used to do the Dunlop road shows way back when. And, you know, we're trying to take that around the country now. So a few different things going on, but it keeps things fresh. And the most important thing, two young kids and family at home and um, trying to trying to be a good dad and a good husband. They they come above and beyond everything. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I've got two daughters and uh, it is, uh, we're, it's an empty nest now. It, it flies by so quickly. So just want mm-hmm. to wish you all the best uh, uh, with everything with your family. I'm a I'm a Dunlop racket user. Uh, the precision. Good man. I always knew you were a good man, Jerry. Yeah, yeah. For for quite a few years now. So, uh, but yeah, Nick. Uh, many thanks for today. Really good stuff. And uh, enjoy the TOC while you're there. And let's do it again uh, very soon. Yeah, we we love Dubai. Is our favorite place, Jerry, to go. So next time we're there, we'll hit you up for a a, a game. Mate, yeah, on the on the golf course for sure. Well, I'll bring you up. To, well, both I'll golf and power links. You'll love that course. Amazing. Yeah, thank you, thank you very much, Nick. Pleasure, Jerry. Take care. Absolutely amazing conversation with all-time great Nick Matthew, and he showed up the way you would expect a former world number one, three-time British Open, three-time World Open, three-time Commonwealth Games champion to show up. He showed up big. Big shout out to Nick for his time and for the great content there. Now, just in terms of the TOC, the only real upset, uh, just in terms of the event and how things have played out, really the only real big upset, I would say, uh, right uh, during the event was the uh, Colombian Cannonballs victory over uh, Mohamed Al-Sharbagi, Miguel Rodriguez taking him out 3-1. And uh, couldn't agree more with Nick in terms of, uh, you know, that... Uh, maybe the very successful first half of uh, Mohammed's season has taken its toll a bit physically. Hopefully, he comes back and uh, finds a bit of rest and finds that old that form that saw him win three uh, events on the trot there at the beginning of the season. But uh, Miguel is still uh, playing unbelievable squash. He's one of those guys. I, I think his his uh, racket skills are just so underrated, and the, his ability to control the ball, play good length. Uh, play controlled squash and then mix that up with uh, some really highly unpredictable squash which is uh, as Joey and uh, PJ pointed out that shot that he kept playing uh, down the middle on Mohammed's uh, backhand uh, side to uh, keep him from uh, injecting so much pace and uh, keeping it uh, keeping him from making it difficult for Miguel that was incredible uh, to watch and very tactically uh, tactically uh, really a thoughtful way of approaching that match against Mohammed uh, 
Now, uh, also, he's a real, uh, I would say, uh, Miguel, he's got to be a real fan favorite there in uh, in New York City, pretty much wherever he plays when he's playing uh, in that type of form. I'm not uh, sure how much further he'll get. Uh, he'll move on in this event, but you never know. I mean, just a few years back, he did win the British Open, uh, surprisingly, and he's uh, pulled off some, some big wins uh, since then as well. So uh, it should be interesting to see how that plays out for him. So all the best to Miguel. I'm a huge fan, as many of us are. Uh, and it'd be also interesting to see how Victor Quinn shows up uh, against Mustafa Assal tomorrow. Uh, by the time you hear this, I'm sure that match would be over. But um, yeah, Victor uh, went to social media and took issue with uh, the last time he played Mustafa, issue with uh, his uh, the movement issues and things like that. So I'm just wondering what he has uh, has in store from the staff and how he plans to uh, to deal with that this time around. Um, also, the Sobe, Amanda Sobe, Olivia Blatchford climb match should be interesting, uh, especially given you know this match is being played on Olivia's home turf, so to speak. Amanda will have several. will will have a big uh, fan base there as well. But uh, I'd say if Amanda gets through that match, it might be a difficult one for her, just given the. You know the setting and the occasion. Uh, Olivia tends to play really well, which she did uh, in the previous round, uh, obviously. Um, but uh, taking out Holly Knott and Three Love, uh, I'd say if Amanda gets through, though, then she has a solid chance of upsetting the apple card on the women's side. So lots to look forward to in the coming days at the TOC. I, I could go on for a while, for a bit more on that, but I think I'll leave it at that. Everybody, many thanks for listening, and stay tuned as we'll. Uh, We've got some good episodes coming up. R.J. Mitchell from Squash Mad, he's put out some really good stories, some really good stuff uh, lately. Uh, So we're going to talk to him about that. Uh, And I'm also still trying to put together a Growing the Game panel, which is requiring, as it turns out, some patience. Uh, But I've got commitments from the WSF, from uh, our good friend, uh, uh, growing the game, uh, friend Eduardo Alvarez, uh, Peter Marshall is committed, and uh, we've got a few more. Alan Thatcher, with any luck, uh, and hopefully that this will uh, take place soon. So stay tuned for that. I'll keep you updated. Maybe within uh, the next two or three weeks, we can uh, push that one out there. So, anyways, many thanks for listening, and we'll be talking to you very soon. Goodbye now.